Femoral is a production of iHeart 3D Audio. For full exposure, listen with headphones. One of the biggest struggles for an artist is how to capture an idea that is original, different, new. But sometimes that creative energy comes from peering into the past, perhaps a past you've never known. For someone like Lori Dereza, finding that inspiration is an integral part of daily life. My name is Lori Dereza, and I'm a musician, a composer, and a performer. At this point, a lot of influence has come to Lori from her grandfather, Tony Rice. Tony Rice is kind of a mystery. Even after seven years of research, I really only know about him through what my mom remembers and the songs he sang. But knowing what I know, I I'd introduce him as a gentle soul, a gentleman, a romantic, a funny guy, a jokester, but ultimately a totally resilient man who never let the most inconceivable tragedy affect his kindness and his creativity. Like Laurie, Tony Rice was a professional singer. Whereas Laurie resides in 21st century New York, Tony's scene was post-war Greece, where two styles of music were competing for prominence. Greece was undergoing this musical enlightenment period. There was so much musical and artistic influence happening from all over the globe. One of the styles of music that emerged from that era is the rebetica music. Rebetica, the music of Greece. Which has influences from Asia Minor and uses traditional instruments like the buzuki and the baglama. Buzuki is like a smaller mandolin. Baglama is like an even smaller buzuki. <laughs> rebetica music. You associate with Greek music nowadays, like if you ever go to a Greek restaurant or a taverna, there's some sort of music going on and you're like, that's Greek music, right? This kind of music was initially associated with the working class, the social outcasts, criminal life. It was bad boy music, right? It was like the blues. Rebetica, the blues of Greece. When it was first introduced, it was kind of shunned by mainstream society and often banned because of the content of the songs. Many songs like this one were simply smoking songs, describing in detail the pleasures of sharing the nargile. They sang about doing drugs and life in prison, oppression, poverty. These were people living difficult lives. Their one reprieve would be like smoking hashish in a circle and jamming out. Pretty badass. You don't think about that when you think of your grandfather's, but that was not my grandfather's scene. <laughs> there was this other scene, which was in stark contrast to this Berapetica movement, called the Old Athens music, or light Greek music. So the complete opposite. This was music that was largely influenced by the sounds of Europe, from Italy to Spain to France. 
You had Greek composers writing tangos and sambas and foxtrot, swing, Latin, bossa nova, bolero. The leader of the New Athens movement of light Greek music Cleon. was better known by his stage name, Atik. Atik came from a wealthy background and lived most of his life abroad before settling down in Athens, where he opened up his own venue called Imadra to Atik, a.k.a. Atik's Pen. I feel like it's a double play on pen and, like, farmhouse. <laughs> this kind of started this movement of vaudeville theater, musical reviews and cabaret shows. The music and the culture associated with this style is kind of the opposite romantic and forlorn and sentimental and had no buzuki whatsoever. <laughs> and it was only Western instruments like piano, guitar, violin, upright bass. Maybe this was a form of escapism at the time, because it was happening during the Second World War, and maybe people wanted to feel like they were somewhere else. So basically you had this, like, West Coast versus East Coast of the 30s and 40s in Greece. I don't think it was a particular rivalry or anything, but the music was so different. But it was happening at the same time. You were either a bad boy with a bad reputation, or you were romantic and a bohemian. I'd like to think that they both eventually merged in the 50s and 60s with this other kind of music called Edechno music. Even if you listen to Greek music now, like Greek pop music, you'll hear buzuki and clarinet and like all this loot stuff and all this stuff that's happening that's very Greek-inspired and very Middle Eastern-y. But you also hear like hip-hop beats and all this like Western influence and structure. Somewhere in the middle of this 1930s culture clash, Tony Rice made his debut. A lot of his story remains a mystery, but here's what we do know. I want to say he was born in 1902 in Patra, this island in Greece, to a poor family during the war, First World War. Coming from nothing, essentially. I think he was self-taught on the guitar and singing, and he was just kind of discovered by accident. Which, like, wouldn't that be nice if that happened to all of us? <laughs> he was a screen printer making basically posters in Patra. He was playing at some little club or something, and Atik just happened, of course, to be in Patra. He went up to my grandfather and allegedly, my mom says, he was like, if you come to Athens with me, I'll make you a big star. Come on. Which is like the classic <laughs> thing that you hear about in movies. A star is born. Come on, friend. He packed up his guitar and his like two pieces of clothing and he was off the next day. You're right that he's a romantic. That's a very romantic notion. Oh yeah. So Tony Rice moves to Athens and he starts singing at Atik's club, Imadra to Atik. I imagine a collection of 
creatives and artists. Is this right to hug you, Haley? So you have singers and you have storytellers. You know, I can remember when kids used to like to have stories read to them. And mimes. A complete vaudevillian theater experience. As people came to see the shows, they started liking him. At some point, he was even playing at the royal palace in Greece. By the way, did you know Greece had a monarchy at some point? Ah, if it isn't the illustrious... My king, a word in your ear. Eventually what happened is he made a kind of name for himself as a singer and a diseur. A diseur is kind of like a person who performs monologues and tells stories. And it's also kind of speak singing style that was popular back then. And I'm going to be high. And so he was kind of well known for that style. As a kite by then. And composers and lyricists kind of huddled around him and started writing songs for him, which became the songs that he would make famous. The chance that Atik gave him had paid off, and Tony Rice paid it forward. In the 30s, there was this new kid on the scene, Tony Maruda. A poor kid, orphaned. He must have been like 17 or 18. He came to Athens with nothing, maybe two drachmas and the shirt on his back. And he was interested in singing and playing the guitar. My grandfather took him under this wing and showed him the ropes. He gave him his first suits and shoes and took care of him as he started building his career. Later on, Tony Maruda became one of the most well-known singers of this era. And went on to record many, many albums and a hit song with Sophia Loren. That's Sophia Loren. Including Atik and Tony Maruda, Tony Rice was associated with some of the most well-known artists of the day, now legends. He also sang with people like Foti Polimeri. Nikos Gunaris, a.k.a. Mr. Grease, which I think speaks volumes. These are bigger names in Greece, so like if you type in any of these names, you'll find their records. So he kind of paved the way for other bigger singers. My mom really glossed over the fact about how big of a deal Tony Rice actually was. For years, she would tell me stories about him, how he was a singer and he sang at clubs. And I was like, yeah, yeah, mom, like me too. I'm a singer and I sing at clubs. (laughs) Big deal. (laughs) 
like you to meet our new entertainer from Chicago. But he had composers and lyricists writing songs for him, and people would go to see him specifically perform these songs live. And he was making a solid living, being a gigging musician. He was kind of living the artist's dream, getting paid to do what you love and be around other creatives. My mom was born in 1950, so now he had a newborn and a beautiful and loving wife. To have all of that after a war that completely ravaged your country, an inconceivable miracle. But of course that didn't last long, and um, this started a chain of events that changed his life forever. When my mom was six years old, my grandfather was diagnosed with throat cancer. I don't know how long he knew about it, but the only option back then for treatment was to remove the vocal cords entirely. So in a life-saving surgery, they removed his vocal cords, and he never sang again. In fact, he also never spoke again either. My mom doesn't even remember what his voice sounded like. She only knew his speaking voice through a machine. Talk about devastating, shattering multiple dreams at once. Aspirations, livelihoods, hopes, all in one go. Ten years later, his wife passed away suddenly. The love of his life, my namesake, Grandma Lori. And then he was just left with my mom. No voice, no career. And he had to completely do a 180 and just do something else to support his family. It's kind of amazing. It's like he took his creativity from singing and he transferred it to using his hands. And he became a carpenter. And he became really good at making these beautifully intricate bird cages. In fact, he had one that he had made in his house, in his backyard, this humongous walk-in birdcage where he kept all of his canaries and all of these other singing birds. And he would be the only one who'd be able to walk in and just hang out with all these birds. That's how he made a living for the rest of his life. He would still hang out with his composer friends and they would go out to tavernas and stuff and he would play the guitar and people would sing. And he was still very social. I can't imagine having that kind of resilience and not being bitter and just resentful for the rest of my life. But according to my mom, he never showed any of that. He was always kind and funny and a gentleman. Though they never met, grandfather and granddaughter would eventually get to connect in an unexpected way. In the Rice Teresa family, the musical bug seems to have skipped a generation. So Tony Rice was a singer and a guitarist, and his wife, Lori, was a piano teacher. And one, two, three, four, watch those fingers, three, four. This performer extraordinaire, 
highly educated woman, which at the time is kind of crazy, spoke multiple languages. And then they had my mom. And when she was in her teens, she was like sneaking off to take opera lessons. Until my grandfather discovered that she was doing that, he would not let her go into the music industry because of how rough and questionable it might have been for a woman back in those days. So that was the extent of my mom's musical toe dip. My dad didn't really play anything. My brother is a historian. So it was basically just me being the weirdo of my family. <laughs> I started singing when I was very young. And then my dad got me one of those small toy keyboards. Maybe the year after, he got me a slightly bigger one. Finally, we rented this upright piano. And that piano has traveled with me all over the globe in every apartment and house I've lived in, from Belgium to Australia to Greece to all of my apartments in New York. And it's currently sitting in my living room. It's not a rental anymore, I guess. I guess you bought it at some point. Well, yeah, we had, I think we made a good investment up through high school. I took classical piano and classical voice, but I wasn't a very good sight reader. It doesn't really work, does it? So I would just kind of make up melodies on the spot. You try. And most people wouldn't notice, but of course, the one person who did was my piano teacher. And she was like, you can't do that. You have to read what's on the page. You're not Mozart, you know? That's when I started writing music. In high school, I was writing these epic prog pop seven, eight minute long things. But then I started music in college, and then later I got my master's degree in studio composition, aka songwriting. And that's kind of when things started for serious. One of my first collaborations was with Stoop who's better known as the producer in the underground hip-hop group Jedi Mind Tricks. They didn't really know anything about the rap world, especially not the underground rap world. But for someone like me who loves singing and writing catchy melodies, it makes a good pairing and contrast. We collaborated on a full album called The Waiting Wolf under our band Vespertina. It's kind of like this trip-hop concept album loosely based around Scheherazade and A Thousand and One Arabian Nights. Am I a nerd? <laughs> that is a very sort of studious um, <laughs> right. approach for an underground trip hop. You know that you yeah, got some people that went to college and you dropped Scheherazade in there, I guess. <laughs> There's even some Rimsky-Korsakov in there for all, all the OGs. 
released it actually 10 years ago. It was my first album, and it kind of just went nowhere. After that, I moved to Japan, and while I was there, I was part of this group called the Good Johnsons. did this like j-pop electro lounge insane funny show we would tour around japan and new york too but it was the complete opposite obviously of vespertina it is such a good night to kiss. It is such a good night to dance. It is such a good night to scooby dooby doo, scooby dooby doo, scooby dooby When I got back to the States, I just felt really out of touch. And I was going through a long, depressive writer's block. I don't really talk about this a lot, but I was close to quitting music. Altogether, I just couldn't write anymore. There was nothing like left. Either putting on a show or putting out anything. There's all this effort and money and time and practice. You work on it and you work on it and you build it up only to find that no one cares. Or so it played out in my mind, right? About two years ago, there was this huge thing that happened for me. A couple of friends of mine suggested I apply to VMI Musical Theatre Workshop as a composer. I laughed because I had never done musical theatre before. Aside from like people coming up to me at shows and being like, do you do musical theatre? And me being like incredibly offended <laughs> that they would even like put me in the same category. <laughs> so it never crossed my mind. The prestigious New York-based BMI Musical Theatre Workshop has been training composers and lyricists since 1961, including an impressive list of alumni. Alan Menken, who did all those Disney movies, Aladdin, Beauty and the Beast, Bobby and Kristen Lopez, who did Frozen and Coco, they met at this workshop. Janine Tesori, who did Shrek and Fun Home, they all got their start at this workshop. You audition as a composer or a lyricist or both, and then if you get in, you're surrounded and cradled by other artists. Hey, what do you think of this? Who are just like you, but like way better. <laughs> just keep writing. And it's a collective. It feels like that's what I was really missing from the New York rock and pop scene this actual sense of community. So I auditioned, and by some crazy miracle, I got in and it changed my life. I don't think I deserved it, of course, at the time, and I was terrified that I would be outed as a total fraud. But ever since then, I've tried to work really hard to just keep writing. It turns out, a major source of inspiration had already found its way to Lori, but it would take some time to materialize. Seven years ago, I was in Greece, 
hanging out with my family, talking about Tony Rice and Atik, and on a whim, I did an internet search for Tony Rice, and I got two hits. One was a Greek Wikipedia article that mentioned his name in quick passing, and then the other one was from a music library in Greece. When I went to the music library's online database, I found the thing that started it all, which was the cover of a piano and vocal score for a song that had my grandfather's portrait. And I was like, wait, what? Because up until that point, I was like, yeah, he's just a singer and he sang at a club, right? I didn't know anything. And I was like, wait, there's an actual photo of him? The family was already aware that there aren't any audio recordings of Tony Rice. The technology used for proper recording took a while to get to Greece. And while some people were able to spend money on recording the albums, somehow it never lined up for my grandfather. Who knows in what condition his voice was like before he had the surgery, but he lost his vocal cords just before he got a chance to record any of his songs. And, of course, without any recordings of his songs, they quickly faded into obscurity, and so did he. So, yeah, I knew there wasn't going to be any recordings, but how did I not think that they might not be sheet music? So the next day I zoomed over there and I got a photocopy of the sheet music, brought it home, plugged in my headphones into my dinky little keyboard that I still had at my parents' house, and I started playing through it. I think at the time I even transcribed it into a session so I could later arrange it. Tony's face on the cover of this score indicated that either the song had been written specifically for him or made famous by his performance. If I could find this one piece of music, were there more? Like I said, my brother's a historian, so he's a little better at finding stuff than I am, and he also lives in Greece, so he can go to these places in person. We started doing some internet searches. We found this random website, which had the title and the composers, and then we tried to cross-reference it with the libraries. We talked with archivists and collectors and YouTubers and like questionable people on Facebook. Just like anyone we could hunt down to see if they had sheet music. Every time I saw his photo on a cover, or every time I saw his name in the credits or mentioned in a dedication, it just blew my mind. It took about two years. My brother found most of them, and we got 10 songs. And I know there's at least one more that we couldn't find the sheet music for. So there's probably more out there that I don't know about. And you never mentioned that you were doing this project to your mom about her father. Nope. So in fact, the first song that I discovered, the one that I brought home and played on my dinky keyboard, this was a song called I Wish I Never Met You, which was kind of an ominous start to this whole thing. But I really didn't have enough at that point. And then by the time I did, I was like, okay, mom's turning 70. 
we're going to put this together and we're going to give it to her for her birthday as a gift. That seemed like a good deadline. I thought we were going to do like a live show. She lives in Greece, so I was going to fly out there for her birthday and do this show. And then the pandemic hit. Never mind. So I was like, okay, well, what now? And this was how Lori stumbled upon her next project, an album featuring new performances of the songs of Tony Rice. I mean, I didn't think it was going to be a whole album. I thought it was going to be maybe a handful of songs and piano and voice at most. But then, I guess like most things that I start, I got obsessed. <laughs> and then it became more and more intricate. It started off, okay, we'll record piano and vocals, but how do we do that? A lot of these songs were for a baritone or tenor voice. I don't know what Tony Rice's voice type was, but I want to assume he had this buttery, baritone voice. I'm a soprano, a high soprano. So things were either moved up or down depending to make sure that it sat in a nice comfy range with my voice. But it soon became clear that all these songs were begging for more. Thus began the endeavor of arranging the scores for orchestration. It started off as a software score transcribing what you have in the sheet music, which is the vocal score and the piano score. And then you extrapolate the chords and everything and you just start adding different textures and instruments to create a fuller sound. In this process, Lori enlisted the help of her BMI workshop cohort, Dan Wilson. We worked together on trying to figure out what it used to sound like when Tony Rice performed it. Doing research and looking at what the instrumentation was, even like looking at old photos of the live performances and seeing what people were holding in their hands. We have some idea of what it would have sounded like because there's other recordings at the time. So did a lot of listening to old recordings of Atik. Even the golden age of Hollywood kind of music, like Fred Astaire, Edith Piaf. Trying to figure out what is it about those arrangements that make you think about that time. Different tricks you use for like the violins to do like a little swoop and a swell and like a little harp thing comes in. And you're like, ooh, I'm in the 40s. <laughs> For me, it was really important that the arranging reflected the emotion and the feeling of the song. Because it's in Greek, and I assumed some non-Greek listeners might be listening, how do you make those listeners hear the feeling and feel the feeling without knowing what is being said? I mean, it took a few tries. I think I Could Never Let You Leave Me took like seven or eight arrangements until it was like, Mwah, that's a good arrangement. And mad props to Dan Wilson for figuring it out and um, doing an amazing job 
to capture that nine decades old sound, Lori and Dan arranged the piano scores for a symphony's worth of instruments. We used string quartet, upright bass, clarinet, alto sax, harp, flute, guitar. We even used nylon guitar for a Spanish sounding song, and piano, and voice. Then after we did the arrangements, then we had to reach out to the musicians and find musicians that had the capability to record remotely. I think that was the most difficult part. Getting people to record separately and make it sound like you were in the same room together. As a musician, you need rehearsal time with other people. And back then, when they would record, they had one or two takes, and they were just really well rehearsed. But we didn't have that. We just kind of had a lot of pre-production and post-production. And then the recording was, whatever it is, we just have to make it work. You want to give them the basic stuff, click track. I did scratch vocals and scratch piano as a reference. And I had a reference track that I had exported from my Sibelius session. And you know, it sounds very like MIDI. And then people would record on top of that and send it back to me. For the strings, for example, I think we did like five violins, five violas, four cellos, two basses. Strings are all about the blend. So we had a lot of overdubs. It was one person who was doing both violin and viola, and she would take multiple tracks. I think we did like five or so. And then I would send the violin and viola tracks to the cellist and the bassist so they could put that in their mix and kind of play along with it. For Woodwinds, for example, that was just kind of live. I think they just played to a backing track and a click track. And then we would re-record the piano, re-record the vocals, edit, edit every single thing, and then try to put it all together, mix, edit, 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 more mixing, mastering, more mastering. I should mention that this is a completely scrappy endeavor. This was all self-financed. This wasn't something that was meant to get out of control like this. But it was important for me to have musicians that I like working with and pay them during this time where no one's working. We hope that the band will make enough tonight to get their uniform, cap, and coat. They can go without their pants a while. I want to think that it captures this old style of recording. You get what you get in one or two takes. That's just kind of part of the beauty. The 10 songs that came together for the Tony Rice Project give a sense of both the old Athens sound and the range of the performer's abilities. Sound. 
This music is super romantic and sentimental and forlorn. There's a few tangos in there that are about deception and cheating and I'll never look your way again. If you see me on the street, look the other way. <laughs> There's a few upbeat ones that are a little more I'm currently in love, not I was. Just full of romance and sensitivity. My brother, Petros, he helped me translate all of these songs. But there's one song where I wrote an English verse. And that's the song, I Could Never Let You Leave Me, which is the title track. When we got the sheet music for it, there was only one verse in Greek, and it was a verse and a chorus, and I was like, it needs at least one more verse. What if I did this, like, La on Rose, Louis Armstrong, French and English verse, and put it together? So you're asking us to part, to take a love and tear it all apart. It's basically almost exactly the same lyrics as the first verse in Greek. Honestly, that was the first song that broke me. So up until now, I had found mostly tangos about cheating and deception, and then this score came along, and I printed it out, and I set it up in front of my piano, and started discovering it for the first time, measure by measure. By the time I got to the fourth measure, I was already crying. It was the most beautiful song I'd ever heard. <laughs> and I know this sounds dramatic, but I felt like with every measure, I was wiping tears. And it just broke my heart. Can you hear this? Let me. These are the first four measures. There's just something about this chord. What chord is it? G, B, F, A flat, B, E. Uh, G7, what were the A, G7 with a 9? G7, 9? It's a G7. No, because it's got a plus E in nine, it too. Plus 9. Plus 6. Plus six. I looked it up, and it's either a G6 flat nine or maybe an inverted F sharp minor seven sharp four nine. Just. <laughs> it's just. It's just. How does that not break your heart? <laughs> Even that first one. Gershwin-esque. Who came up with this? Just absolutely genius. Th that's the thing, like when you don't know what a chord is, when you're like playing it and it just hits you, oh my god. 
So I was, <laughs> I was just playing measure by measure, just stumbling through it with my bad sight reading, being a sloppy mess. The title of it in Greek is Then Safina Namufigis. Which I translated to, I could never let you leave me, but it more closely translates to, I just can't let you go, or I will never forget you. That was a perfect double meaning to use in tribute to my grandfather and his legacy. Through the process of performing and reworking these songs, Lori developed a deep connection with the source material, even when it wasn't easy. These songs happen to also be very beautiful and very well written and very enjoyable to sing. But there's a few on there that were tough and the only two songs that you may have heard of before. Granada by Agustin Lara, famous Spanish composer. This was typically reserved for this big tenor aria moment. That was vocally challenging, but I can picture the dramatic scene on stage. The one song by Atik that's on the record, Odiavatis Tizois, Life's Passerby, was probably the toughest to record. But it basically talks about how you've become like an old man and you have nothing and no one is there for you. and. Even drinking won't kill you, and you're just at the lowest point in your life where you just want to die and everything you try doesn't work. There's no redemption in the song, it's just, it's just heartbreak and that's it. Listen, it just like keeps digging itself deeper and deeper and deeper until you're underground. Like, don't listen to it at a party. Total downer. By the end, I'm, I'm already crying every time I recorded it. Singing that on stage would completely break me. Thank you.
So you've got the record. When do you clue your mom into all of this? <laughs> November 22nd, 2020. <laughs> On her birthday. Okay, mama, are you ready for this? Yes. For this? Yes. We were working right up until that Zoom call. Up until like 40 minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> Mastering one of the tracks that wasn't sitting right. I had to make her a video to prep her on like what she's about to experience. You know, there was research involved, the people that made it happen. These are just the songs that we discovered. There's still missing pieces, but there are 10 songs. And just, I don't know, just enjoy it. Okay. You like it. Okay. Mm -hmm. Here we go. And I don't think she totally grasped the enormity of it at first. How did you gather all those musicians to play? It's amazing. But she does now. <laughs> I hope this is a good 70th birthday gift. <laughs> yes, it is. She didn't know about these songs at all or about the sheet music. This was the first time she'd ever heard them as well. And she's already my number one fan. So for me to sing these songs was, I guess, like the cherry on top. <laughs> it was a very nice gift for me. Not only that I heard your voice and dance voice and all this music, but uh, because I had, you know, something from my father. It's wild, too, that, I mean, because she never heard him sing the songs. No, she had no idea that these existed. Plus, I find it strange, but maybe makes sense that in our attic or basement, we didn't have any of the sheet music of his. This is like complete fantasy. But I picture Tony Rice discovering that he has to do his vocal surgery and remove his vocal cords. And then taking all of this sheet music and all of this music that he had worked on for 20 plus years and just lit it on fire. And then went on with his life. If I was in his place, I would probably do something similar. I Can Never Let You Leave Me was released in March of 2021. I'm self-releasing it. I'm self-funding it. This is kind of like a passion project that I didn't think would see the light of day because it was just for my mom. And then I just got so deep into it that I felt like people need to hear this. This isn't my, my demographic or anything, I don't know who this is for, but I just want it out there. The Tony Rice Project required a lot of amazing feats, from Laurie and Petros's dogged research to the foresight of Greek archivists, from the skill of composers writing almost a century ago to the diligence of musicians working from home during a global pandemic. But at its core, the source of inspiration in this music is ineffable. 
the brilliance of one artist filtered through the creativity of another. Through this journey, I was able to discover a lot about what kind of person and artist my grandfather was. Though we never got to hear Tony Rice himself sing these songs, I hope that we can hear his voice through mine and that these songs won't be forgotten again. I do think we're very similar. He had this community of musicians, like I have my community of musicians now. I think we're both big softies for both animals and the humans we love and the kind of music that we like. We're both sentimental performers whose careers haven't quite gone as planned. We're both great cooks, and we love entertaining and making people laugh. I never met him, but after all this, I... I feel really connected in, in a way that I can't quite explain, but I hope he likes it.
This episode of Ephemeral was written and assembled by Alex Williams and produced by Matt Frederick, Trevor Young, and Max Williams. Explore the songs of Tony Rice, Vespertina, and The Good Johnsons wherever you stream music and pay it forward with your own copy of I Can Never Let You Leave Me or in Greek over at lauridereza.com and hear more from us at ephemeral.show. Next time on Ephemeral. It's hard to overstate the importance of the space of the video store. Right, over 10,000 videos. Whether it was a shabby place, or whether it was a glitzy blockbuster, or whether it was a kind of quirky, artsy-fartsy place with memorabilia or whatever, the space of the store is hugely important because it's a social space and a physical space creating this new sense of a physical relationship of shopping with movies. Support Ephemeral by recommending an episode, leaving a review, or dropping us a line at Ephemeral Show. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And learn more at ephemeral.show.